Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Welcome to the Raiders of the Lost Commentary podcast. Welcome to Jurassic Park. The unofficial commentary for your favorite... Get to the chopper! ...and not-so-favorite films. The famous comedian, Adam Braunschweiger. Starring your hosts, Adam and Matt. Can you dig it? Start your movie in three, two, one. All right, everybody. Uh, so we have a special podcast this week. Uh, we have on the podcast filmmaker Dale Morrissey, and we're going to watch his film, Only the Dead Know the Brooklyn Americans. Dale, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So a bit of an experiment thing we're doing here on the podcast, having indie filmmakers on and Dale is a filmmaker uh, I've interacted with. I've actually, is this the film I did the titles on or it is the film? <laughs> yeah, it is. So, so we have to do like a disclaimer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, yeah, maybe that I, Full I, I, I worked uh, on the yeah, film. Yeah, you did the titles on this one. Yeah. So it's something kind of interesting. Um, Dale and I met at a film festival in Kingston, Ontario, uh, and uh, I screened a short in front of his feature. That was Father of Hockey, right, Dale? That's right, the father. Uh, I think you account for most of the audience for that for that screening. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we uh, we I think we took over the, f- the entire festival that year. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome though; it was great. And I, but I, I was okay because I um and I was just happy to have the film screening, and right. uh, I didn't know what to do because I I, I was like the the father of hockey was this little film that uh, sort of grew into a bigger thing on me, and uh, and then it sort of took off and it it, it led to well it led to uh, hockey's lost boy and then it led to this film that we're talking about today right so uh for the people what is only the dead know the brooklyn americans for anybody out there that doesn't know about it okay so only the dead know the brooklyn americans is the story of uh the rise and fall of the new york americans hockey team and the battle to save them by bringing them to Brooklyn during the Second World War. So the New York Americans, of course, uh, are this hockey team, the very first National Hockey League team to be in New York City. They predate the New York Rangers by a season. And One whole season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everybody thinks of the Rangers as being New York's hockey team. Right. Actually, the Americans were New York's hockey team, and they were beloved. They were sort of uh, this rough and tumble, lovable losers group of players, and uh, and people loved them, and they loved them so much that uh, the ownership group of Madison Square Garden said, "Hey, we should have our own team, and then we can take the whole gate instead of you know, uh, sort of leasing." time to, to, to the Americans and uh, and so that's how the Rangers came to be really? and so yeah that's so, kind of interesting little piece of history was uh, hockey a big deal in the 40s uh, in the states or was it still more of a Canadian thing pardon me was hockey like a big deal in the states uh, at that time or was it more of a Canadian thing still well hockey in the states is sort of 
a, a college thing, an amateur thing in the early 20th century and into the 1920s. And then the NH, and then we have some smaller leagues uh, popping up as well. But what happens is, is the NHL um, is under threat, right, by um, some of these rival leagues that are happening out west and stuff. And so it's the it's the NHL that, that sort of establishes professional hockey in the U.S. And they do it through the Boston Bruins first, and and then they do it through the New York Americans. And so it's really it's landing professional hockey in New York City is what cements pro hockey in the national. Really, nothing West. in like Montreal, Toronto. Like I guess that came later, or well, no, Montreal, Toronto are there, and it's you know it's the Canadians, and then it's the Maroons, and then of course the St. Pat's are here in Toronto. But really, the NHL is a regional league. It's it's a Canadian league, and uh, it doesn't matter. It, I mean, it's I know it's sacrilege to say that, but you know, uh, to other than it, it's 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 destined to become the the CFL of hockey. It's destined. <laughs> become the Canadian Football League of Hockey without the Boston Bruins who are sort of successful and then uh, the Americans which take New York by storm without the New York Americans going to New York City and becoming the hit of Broadway uh, we don't we don't really have this great success that becomes the NHL that's interesting so that's sort of like the beginning of hockey in a sense of, of how we know it today you know what? Uh, it's we're speak, we're painting in really broad brush strokes, but I, I think it's safe to say that. Yeah, it's it's kind of you know it's one of those the first thing like the first you know UFC fight of where we get to we are today or you know the first thing. So well, uh, how did sure this... and, and we're and we're talking now right around the you know the, they just this past weekend was the hundredth anniversary of the founding of the National Hockey League. Yeah, the Leafs and, and the Canadians played in Montreal. Uh, this oh, weekend, game this past brutal. weekend, Did you watch and that last was, night. I don't. Who do you uh, cheer for? Well, well the least... Leafs played the Montreal Canadiens. It was nice of them to at least you know show up so that they could, they could skate around for a while and practice on their rink. Oh, so uh, the you know so but that this was the hundredth anniversary of the meeting that founded the, that created the National Hockey League, and uh, so that league by the by by. By the time the the Americans uh, show up in New York City, we're you know not quite a decade in. Is, is struggling, and it's the Americans going to New York City that really helps turn the league around and and, and make people sit up in, in the U.S. and go, hey, this is something now. And then it becomes a, such a success that the Rangers are, are born. And then after that, we we uh, we have a team in Detroit, and then we have a team in Chicago, and all of a sudden, and, oh, then we have, of course, we have a team in Pittsburgh as well, short-lived, but we do have a team in Pittsburgh, and uh, all of a sudden, we've got ourselves a league. you got a real league, yeah. So how did you, uh, how did you start the dock what uh, what was the thing that brought on doing the dock well what happened was i was working on a film called hockey's lost boy which is the story of george patterson who scored the first goal for the toronto maple leafs when they became the toronto maple leafs that's what the uh, tragically hip song's about right no, 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 that's that's about um, the um, that's about uh, the tragic uh, circumstances around. Uh, 
for the, the cup winning goal in 1951. Oh, right, right, right. And, and then had the, the mishap where uh, he tragically died in a plane crash uh, in Northern Ontario outside Cochrane. Um, so um, what happens, uh, so this film I, I worked on was uh, about uh, George Patterson, a Kingston guy who um, um, had a lot of thirst, actually. He led Kingston to its one and only uh, Memorial Cup uh, championship appearance. Kingston would lose, but he he took them there. Sure. And the then, Memorial um, Cup, for those who don't know, it's a junior hockey in that's right. Canada. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so it's it's sort of it's sort of a big deal for in, in Canada for for hockey. Mm-hmm. And a lot um, of the greats that play in the NHL, they all started out in that sort of leagues that are there now. So that's right. They started in the Canadian Hockey League in the CHL, and then they and then they play for this trophy. And it's actually one of the hardest trophies to win because you only get certain number of years to play to, to, to win it so exactly um so uh so anyway so he, he did that and then uh he after kingston he plays in hamilton for a little while um in a, in a semi-pro league and then uh the con Smythe buys uh buys his contract and brings him to what was then the saint pat's because they were just transitioning over um and you know funny just as an aside here again is where the americans are so important in, in this story um but I'll get back to how I, I got to make the film. Mm-hmm. So the Americans are, are brought are brought to, to New York City by Big Bill Dwyer, who's a rum runner, a gangster. So he, he brings them in. The Americans are so successful that uh, they decide that the, the ownership group, Tex Rickard, he decides he wants his own team in the garden. So they come up with the New York Rangers, okay? The New York Rangers need a GM. They hire Con Smythe. And um, you still there? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay, good. My, my phone did a weird thing. So, so Con Smythe is brought in to be the GM, okay? So G uh, is in charge of bringing everything together, obviously, back then. So Con Smythe puts together the, the bones of the, of the New York Rangers and a really good team. But they, they decide, Rickard decides, Smythe isn't a name brand guy. He's not someone who's got star power, and they need star hmm. power to go up against the Amherst. Con Smythe's a nobody back then. Right. So he yeah. fires Con Smythe, even though he's not even a year into his contract yet. And he brings in um, he brings in um, somebody else from out, from out west. He brings in so anyway, fires Con Smythe, tosses him off to the side. So Con Smythe goes back to Toronto licking his wounds. He brings he brings in Lester Patrick from out west, from 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 the West Coast League. Uh, the Pacific Coast League brings in Lester mm-hmm. Patrick. Lester Patrick, of course, is, is like the man when it comes to hockey, right? Right. And, and so Lester Patrick forms the Rangers into what would become a Stanley Cup juggernaut at some point. So, and uh, so Con Smythe goes back to Toronto licking his wounds. Right. And uh, he gets uh, approached by uh, a fellow who's there saying, hey, you know, the St. Pat's are in trouble and they're going to end up being sold to a group that wants to move into Philadelphia. Are you in? Do you want to come help me buy the St. Pat's and keep them in Toronto? Smythe says, well, yeah, I guess I'll do that. So he goes back to New York and says, hey, you owe me the rest of my money. (laughs) (laughs) 
So so the Rangers say, okay, fine. So they give him the rest of his money. He he then bets it on a horse race, wins wins that bet, bets on a football game, wins that, and then takes and then takes those winnings and then buys the vested interest in St. Pat's and turns them into Toronto Maple Leafs and saves so the, the team. Were started so by, without, by a, without a, the Amherst, a gambling addict, <laughs> because the St. Pat's are gone. So so anyway, so that's that's my aside. So anyway, so how did I end up making this film? So I make this I'm making this film on George Patterson. Right. And after George scores this great goal for the Shawnee Maple Leafs, the Leafs cut him loose uh, about about a season after that. And um, he kicks around the league a little bit, plays for the Canadians, and gets traded to the Bruins. But he ends up playing for the New York Americans. Ah, oh, there's the time. And that's where he plays his best hockey. So I'm looking for a guy who can talk to me about uh, George's time with the Amherst. And because that's where he plays his best hockey. And he's actually a really good hockey player when he plays for the Amherst. And I'm looking around and I find uh, through uh, a listing on the Society for International Hockey Research that there's a guy, he lives in Brooklyn, who is an expert on the New York Americans. So I reach out to him through Facebook, uh, through email rather. It takes forever to get back to me. Finally, he gets back to me and says, yeah, would love to chat with you. Come do an interview with me. But oh, why don't you hold off for a little bit? Because the Brooklyn Historical Society is putting together this exhibit on the New York slash Brooklyn Americans. And it'll be a great thing for you to come look at. And maybe you can shoot some footage there and we can do our interview there. And he says, oh, by the way, I helped out a little bit. Hmm. Oh, this sounds good. So anyway, we hold off and we go down in the fall of uh, 2015, 2015, whatever it was. And um, so I take my daughter along with me because uh, she's in grade seven at the time and um, take her with me. And um, decided that uh, this would be a, a nice sort of trip for her to go on. And she sort of helps me with films at this time. She uh, carries my gear and she knows how to work the boom mic and everything. You're, uh, you're you know, assistant there. Yeah, which is, you know, what, what all kids, what all girls in the seventh grade should know how to do. You know? Right. It's also free labor, <laughs> I'm sure, for you there. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go there, but but thanks for going there. Uh, <laughs> how, I'm Family not sure how business. to file that on my taxes, but thanks. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so... Uh, Trust me, I, I paid enough in pizza and uh, burgers down there that mm. uh, it wasn't free. You're going to uh, pay so, a lot too when she becomes a teenager. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so we went... Uh, uh, so we went down and uh, did all this, and so she's uh, holding the boom mic and stuff. And and this guy's really nice guy. He's jovial and we're talking and stuff. And she says, "Oh hey, last time I did this for my dad, she said I, I hit the guy with the microphone." <laughs> <laughs> and he laughs. She says, "Oh, did you take him right out?" She says, uh, "No," but she said I, I whacked him in the face. She says, "Well, she says, well, I appreciate you not not hitting me." And uh, so we're signing the releases and stuff for him over, over this case that's holding these uh, scrapbooks. And uh, I'm talking back and forth with them and saying his, his name is uh, Stephen Cohen. And I said to him, I said, uh, I said, you know, I said, this story would make a great documentary. I said, the story of the Americans and, you know, the, the rise and fall of them and the sort of tragic end to them, how they just sort of get forgotten about in the history of hockey. And uh, he said, well, I always thought I'd make a great book. He said, but I haven't got time to write a book. So he said, a film would be great. You want to make a film anytime, you let me know and I'm in. I'll help any way you want. Hmm. And uh, I said, oh, that's great. I said, that would be great. So pack up my gear, we shake hands, and um, 
and uh, my daughter and I were walking back to, to the, you know downtown Brooklyn. We were trying to find a you know street vendor to get a hot dog. She says, "Hey, Dad, this is great. This man wants to make a movie with you." Now, you're an independent film uh, maker, so you know what that's like, right? How many guys have told you they want to make movies with you, right? Yeah, or how many people are like, you got to come to my work where we have the craziest people and make a show. Yeah, exactly. And then so they say, as soon as you call them on it, they say, oh, no, 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 right? Yeah. So my daughter says, hey, Daddy, this is great. This man wants to make a movie with you. And I say, oh, sweetie, people always say that. They don't really mean it. Yeah. And I said, don't <laughs> worry about it. I said, he was just being really nice. Yeah. I get this frantic email. This is this is like October. So about a month later, I get this frantic email from my agent saying, "Hey, Dale, we need three more hockey movie ideas from you, and we need them ASAP because we're putting together this deal. And we need we need content." So I you know, send an email off to to, to uh, Stephen in Brooklyn. And I say, "Hey, you still want to still interested in this Brooklyn Americans idea?" Now he takes forever sometimes to get back to me by email and stuff. Two minutes, I get an email back from him. Yeah, we're in. Absolutely. Anything we can do, we'd like to come on board as executive producers. Really? <laughs> Just eh? like that. Just like that. That done. never happens, by the way. If that you never know happens. indie film, it's like... So, it's... just like that, he's on board, his wife's on board, and just like that, we, we made a movie. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. So... Uh... You uh, so how's the uh, the deal all work out with getting all these hockey movies? Did you make a deal with like a broadcaster to do a bunch of different hockey films or? So yeah, so what happened was we, um, I made the father of hockey, and um, it started out it was going to be just a half hour film, and I do, I've done a lot of work where I sell things to in the past where I sold things to PBS affiliates and that sort of thing. Right. And uh, in the past, and then what happens is uh, you know I, I've made sure to tailor them to broadcast blocks, so a half hour or an hour block. The okay. most and that sort of thing. So the father of hockey, which is about um, Captain James Sutherland, who created the Memorial Cup, mm-hmm. which we were just talking about a little while yep. back, and but he also created the Hockey Hall. He also founded the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah. And so the, the so the full title of the Captain James Sutherland and the Battle for Hockey's Hall of Fame. And um, so I started on making this film, and it was going to be a half-hour film. And, and then, of course, I had all this content, and it became a 50-minute film. And then it became a 90-minute film, and I had no idea what to do with it. And I was just sort of sitting there, and uh, I had this chance meeting with um, a guy named Michael Lilly, who was putting together this film collective in, in Napanee, right. uh, which is where I live right now, which is where I live. And um, um, so um, film collectives are where, you know, creatives all get together and kind of can share resources and hang out and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we'd never had one of those anywhere nearby. So I was thrilled. So anyway, it turns out he's also, he's an agent and and a sales agent and he's got distribution and all this stuff. And, film and um because i'd never heard of the guy before so i instantly i thought oh this is a scam (laughs) (laughs) because because you know that's that's what you do when you're in this when you're all alone and you're an independent filmmaker your first instinct is to think yeah yeah there's no way anybody wants to look at my film is for real yeah um (laughs) so so the next morning like i think so i hand him a screener and um, I figure well, I'm never going to hear from this guy again. Or if I do, it's going to be because he's uh, 
some Nigerian prince who wants, wants to, to give wants, wants to give me a million dollars, yeah. but only if I give him my social insurance number. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I uh, so but the next morning, I get a phone. I get an email from the guy saying, "Hey, let's have a meeting. I'd like to represent you and represent your film." And just like that, um, we we hammer out a deal, and it took about I know now. This is, I think this is probably very realistic. It took almost a year, probably, for him to get something done with that film. It was not an easy film, I think, for him to to shop because it was because uh, of the length and because um, it, you know the film was made for no money and that sort of yeah. thing. But he, he got it shopped, and from there it sort of it was sort of like. Um, I don't like to use this term, but I think it's accurate. That film was kind of like a loss leader. Okay. In some ways, in that um, it it just it it maybe didn't uh, it, it sort of blew open the doors for me. In in that, uh, um, like I I could have I could have taken it myself and probably sold it to a dozen PBS affiliates and just probably done okay with it and just moved on with my life. But he took it and he blew the doors open with it. Right. And then um, with that, we we moved on and, and then people found people saw that and approached me to make um, Hockey's Lost Boy. And then that turned into uh, the Brooklyn Americans. And now we have a thing where basically the company's been rebranded and and it's sports history is sort of what we focus on. Okay. And and um, so now Just we have hockey. No, it's sports history and and character driven history narratives that that are sort of the the, the core competencies of the, of, of the production company and and so um, we do that and then um, and so uh, so those are the films that I I, I work really sort of channel my resources toward and then and um, we have uh, we have agreements in place with Super Channel is a broadcaster here in Canada and then we um, we work hard to get them uh, uh, on digital uh, I say we but really it's again it's Factory Film Studio it's just Michael doing but his they, job you know, yeah to, to get them on digital platforms and video on demand in the US and then you know Amazon Prime and, and um, which against the streaming service right mm-hmm. and that sort of thing and then and then on DVD right so we're, we're doing you know cross platform because because we have to make, make sure that you can monetize them across as many, many platforms, platforms as possible which that is a really boring thing uh, to talk about instead of a movie but that's that's the business side yeah that being said if people want to check out uh, Only the Dead Know the Brooklyn Americans or any of the other films they can check them out on iTunes and Amazon things like that yeah yeah, 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 they're on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, all and, the uh, usual spots. All the usual suspects, yeah. Exactly. And then, and then in the U.S., um, the the Brooklyn Americans film is on um, video on demand, and then um, uh, Hockey's Lost Boy is coming to video on demand in December. Very cool. And and then they both come to DVD uh, started December as well. So when you start uh, when you start a project like this, what's sort of like your process? Like how do you approach researching things like that? And, and like where do you like you get the go ahead to do the Brooklyn Americans film? But like it seems like such a daunting large task. Like where do you where do you start? You know. Well, with. Um 
I got lucky in with the Brooklyn Americans film in that with with the executive producers, uh, it was a husband and wife team, uh, Stephen Cohen and and Lisa Melman. And with them, Lisa came it was a package deal. So Lisa came and brought a skill set with her and that she helped with um, doing a lot of leg work for me and that she helped pull some, she would, she would work for me because they're based in Brooklyn. So she would do a lot of work for me in Brooklyn and in Manhattan and pulling together um, uh, primary sources down there for me and lining up interviews and that sort of thing and doing scheduling. And so, all I had to do was just work on going through the documents and and doing the research from the materials that were pulled for me. Right. And so we could narrow the focus and we could work together as a research team. And that cut down probably on my research time, I would say by half. So so instead of having like two years of research, we probably cut that in half by by less than a year. Um, yeah, and that, that was huge. So her legwork was just incredible. And all of a sudden there's spreadsheets, we created a Dropbox file, and we did a folder. Uh, we created a Dropbox folder, and then created files and stuff within there. And all of a sudden, there are spreadsheets showing up with things lined up for me, and you know, and just like that, it was it was great. And then we would, you know, we would start pulling the other resources. And then also, um, like if you watch the film, because it's playing now as you and I are chatting, yeah. um, there are there are um, all this great archival footage, and that footage comes from uh, a video hockey video archivist um, named Paul Patsko. And, and, um, somebody that has all this stuff sort of in, in a vault somewhere? Like, uh, Yeah, that's that's what he does. He's uh, He's got uh, the largest private collection. Uh, here's some right now. This is from the, this is, this is, this is newsreel footage. So this would have been like 16 mil footage that he digitized or? Yeah, that he's digitized. Yeah. So that's, that's newsreel footage. That's all, that's, uh, that's, that's all from his private collection. And and all the uh, images and stuff that you, you acquired for the film, like how do you, uh, how do you go about like just finding that? Like, so, so you work through private collections and then you approach uh, historical societies and that sort of thing. Right. So, because you have to make sure you get stuff that you've got rights to, right? So exactly, it just yeah. seems like such a uh, like a large task to just be like, like yeah. I, need... I think history documentaries are probably the they're they're an expensive documentary to make um, because you one they're they're very labor intensive. Um, compared to other documentaries, I think. Uh, and I say that not tongue-in-cheek, not being flippant in any way, because I've, I've done news coverage and I've done long-form news coverage and I've done history documentaries, obviously, which is what I focus on. And the resources and the, the man, the, the person hours required for this sort of thing um, are, are just, it's 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 mind-boggling. And, right. and the cost involved because um, 
if you don't have research, if you, you know, having a research assistant and having archivists that you can hire, those are luxuries. Um, so that's one thing. You just put that out of the window. But to have the, have the budget to acquire the rights for the images, that's another thing. And you have to work that into your budget. Yeah. Again, it's the business side and it's kind of a tedious thing to talk about sometimes. But you have to you have to work that into your budget, right? Yeah, so when you're writing a script, people don't think you, about have that, you have to keep that in mind. You have to be cognizant of that when you write your script. Because you people always say, you know, um, I don't know what it's like when you do a fiction film, but you you write to visuals, right? You write to you write to your images. So when you um, set out to do this, you say you like you write a script, but full do you do this before you uh, do any interviews or is it No, I do the interviews first. I okay. do all the research and then I, I some people do it do it a different way. But I have my degrees in history and then I have a postgraduate uh, uh uh, degree in, in um, broadcast journalism, so I take a history historian's approach, and uh, I either form a thesis or something along the lines, and then I do the research and and do the question and and interview my subjects first, mm-hmm. and then I write my script based on what I have. Some people who do documentaries they'll write a script and then they'll derive their interview subjects to answer the questions that fits their script. The fits let the narrative they want to drive, right? Yeah. The the narrative they've already created and I I can't do that as a historian I can't do that I uh, one, it's not ethical, and, and two, it's it's just it's bad storytelling. Right. Um, and so, to me, you have to you have to get the interviews done. You have to do the research, do your homework, and then you've got to do your interviews. I mean, here's Stan. Well, we're talking, and uh, Stan was great. Um, I, we shot, I think, like two and a half hours of footage with him. <laughs> Really, and then so yeah. like it's sifting yeah. through that two and a half hours to find like the little gems yeah. of exactly of bits and and to yeah. piece it into something that's sort of coherent. Yeah. And fits with that stuff. So I've, I've already written a script, like this clip here. He's talking about how well they thought that they were. They, they said, you know, we said they were very good. They were very good at partying and drinking. Right. right. I asked him. I said, well, they were a really bad hockey team, right? And he says, no, they were. They were. He says they were a very good hockey team. They were a good hockey team and drinking and partying have i already written my script and tried to push him in another way we don't get that clip we don't use it right? yeah right that's yeah. that's true that's interesting so, uh i guess in, in a documentary like this just like you almost have to just get all the interviews let the cards fall and then try and make it turn into a story yeah um so the uh sometimes we get into a bit of like tech stuff but uh, we can talk a little bit about uh how you guys got larry king to narrate the movie for you guys so yeah so larry king was uh was exciting to get um Did first of all him? i that's everybody asked and no i never got to meet him ah. and I, I know you think that i could pull the strings to get to meet him. i never got to meet him um, we did the, so the same happened, thing happened early, with us early? too with uh yeah, so, we got some uh john dunsworth uh who just passed away but we got him in to do a voiceover in our film but yeah i uh, never got to meet him no but what a voice though right i know yeah so that's just great so um so larry king so what happens is um early in the process so we started uh, you know it's all blurs together now the years and the dates but so we started i'm thinking it's like 20 
15, December 15, no, December 14, whatever it was. So December, it was December, it was in the December that we, we inked our deal and everything and we got started to work our, uh, on the film. And then in the, Jan- and then right after Christmas or like late January, we have a conference call. Stephen and, uh, and Lisa and I have a conference call. And, um, uh, and this, uh, uh, great exhibit the Brooklyn Historical Society had they had this um, thing where you could pick up phones and listen to voices uh, from people from Brooklyn talk about their experiences with hockey and different types of hockey and one of the voices was Larry King talking Uh about what it was like growing up in Brooklyn and playing uh, roller hockey and going to watch um, the Brooklyn I can't remember if they were the torpedoes or who they were and going to watch the Brooklyn Americans uh, in Madison Square Garden and what hockey meant to them growing up. So I pick up this phone receiver and, and watch these images go by on the screen, listen to Larry King's voice. So anyway, so it's January, end of January, and we're still early in the process and we're kind of putting things together. And and Stephen Cohen says to me on, on the conference call, it'd be great if we could get this Brooklyn, a Brooklyn voice, some kind of a voice that matched the film. And I said, yeah, that would be really great. I think that would be, that would be a, a good idea. I said, that that's what we need. And I said, it's important to get someone who is a who has a who as a storyteller not just i said oftentimes i said don't get a sportscaster don't get someone who's an ex-athlete who who just who doesn't have a sense of rhythm and and timbre and that kind of thing when they read things get someone who can tell a story i said you should get someone right and he says and he's i can hear him turn to his wife lisa in the conversation i think we can get larry and I'm, I'm not going getting it. She says, yeah, Larry would be great. And I said, oh, okay. Well, who's who's Larry? I'm thinking, tell me it's not like just some, you know, this guy, guy in know. an office building somewhere, right? And she says, well, Larry King. And, of course, being like, you know, the Irish-Canadian smartass that I am, I said, oh, that's great. You do that. And I said, I'll, I'll get Bobby De Niro to do some <laughs> of the other voiceover work that we need. And, uh, and there's silence. And then they said, no, we can get Larry King. He's a. Uh, it's, it's, I think. I think. It's, it's, I think he'll do it for us because he's a. He's a friend of the family. Oh. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know. I said, I said, I'm sorry. I, I, that would be great. I said, Larry King would be wonderful. He said, yeah, my, him and my dad are, are, are friends. They go back like to their childhood. That's and amazing. So, so I, I left it and like months go by and months go by. And then once in a while I get an email. Yeah, I'm still trying to get him. And and then it goes on and on. So, um, so, um, so anyway, so months go by, and so fast forward to March, and I'm I'm in New York City and in Brooklyn, and we're doing interviews and stuff. We interview Stan, and and we go interview Cohen, which is Steve Cohen's dad, and we interview her because he was uh, he played roller hockey, and he would go and play. Um, oh, this guy's great here. Um, this is Lou. He was a stick boy for the Brooklyn Americans. Oh, cool. So he's like a just an amazing guy to talk to um so so anyway so i'm sitting down we're we're interviewing her cohen and uh who's just the sweetest guy just the nicest man and um so we're chatting with her and um and we go back and, and I, I go after i look and sure enough there's this picture on his bookshelf and um and it's him 
Larry King and Vince Scully. Oh, wow. <laughs> had taught your stadium. And I said, wow. I said, that's a, that's a great picture. And he said, it's a really great picture. And he says, yeah. He says, uh, Sun Gal was doing the documentary on the Dodgers. He's got the stick from the accents on the right. Dodgers. And he says, so me and Finn and Larry were all in it together. And he says, we're all pals. And he says, so, so I said, we, we got some of the, one of the production people to get a picture of the three of us at the stadium together. That's so cool. <laughs> It's just like my mind was blowing. Like it's just it's a whole, you know. All of a sudden, my my I'm like, oh, well, I'm gonna go back and hang out with my kids and my dog after. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you get uh, you get like the go ahead. Larry's gonna do the voiceover. And you did they just set up studio time and you guys sent him a script and then you got back an audio file kind of thing. Yeah, so um, I was supposed to go down first. We were it was all the place. First, we we're gonna go. I was gonna. I wanted to be on site because I wanted to. Um, I wanted to be able to just keep an eye on how things were, were going, yeah. and in case because some of the stuff was Canadian too, right? And I wanted to make sure we didn't, you know. Oh, what is this weird stuff? And, and so. Right. Um, and um, well, here's some stuff here about Conacher, and this is we I had to fight to keep the Conacher stuff in the film because uh, um, the, the, um, uh, my my executive producers didn't really get the whole Conacher thing because of course Conacher being was important is important to the Canadian viewers in the film, right? And, right. Uh, but um, anyway, um, and it talks about is important in the story because. Uh, um, you know, it shows that uh, as much as the, the Americans were zany, crazy guy, the Americans were zany, crazy hockey players who were, you know, basically getting blotto every night. The the, the uh, easy access to all the liquor and stuff had, you know, serious life-altering um, um, effects. And one of them was that it turned, you know, Conacher into basically a functioning alcoholic and almost ruined his life, almost killed him. So wow. anyway, so, 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 so back to Larry. But, but so... Uh, to, to Hollywood and just we were just going to record it with just one of those portable recorders and a, and a, and a shotgun mic and just you know a mic and a, and a screen and put it right, right there in front of them and and recorded it at his place and I would go out and then we decided no that wasn't going to work and the timing wasn't good and then I would just meet up with him and he was in New York or something and and then uh, I had pneumonia when he was coming down and oh, I didn't no. want the headlines to say Dale Morrissey kills Larry King with by giving him pneumonia <laughs> That's not what I wanted to follow me around for the rest of my oh no my life. Oh no, no, that's a bad scene, man. Bad yeah, scene. Yeah. So so anyway, so basically he go they found a found a little he was doing some other recording and they just tacked it on to the end of the recording stuff he was doing in a studio and they fed me an MP3 wow. by email. And uh, it's great the outtakes were hilarious. You know, he's reading along and he's he's reading and says, Man, this is a lot of reading. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I read another stuff. He says, "What's who's this guy?" He, he always he, he hears finger hitting the paper on the script. Who is this guy again? What, what's he? What's he in the movie for? <laughs> oh wow! You know? So yeah, has, uh, have you so, heard? Has Larry watched the film? Is, does he know uh, about it? I I haven't heard anything back from him yet. So I um, when it goes to the DVD, we'll make sure he gets a nice a nice proper DVD copy of the film. I've sent him. I, we've made sure to send him. Uh, I think 
make you note and everything for yeah. being involved with. But uh, we'll we did, make sure it gets a proper DVD. When we did the the thing with John, uh, we all I had to do I called into a studio in Halifax that he had he'd like set up himself. He's just such a like interesting guy like that. He would he's I was gonna come down and record it myself, and he's like, no, you don't even need to do that. He's like, just use the Trailer Park Boys recording studio. He's like, I'll introduce you to them, and they'll call you, and was passed. Oh, that's through. awesome. Yes, <laughs> that's amazing. Eh? He's just yeah. going above and beyond. He's just such a cool guy. Uh, so what? Uh, and, that, and that's how these little that's how these little projects get done. Sometimes you know exactly. Just, yeah. yeah, people kind of pitching in and pulling in, and yeah. yeah. So, um, so what are some of your favorite docs? Like your uh, favorite filmmakers, favorite doc filmmakers. Like where do you gotta draw your inspiration from, or things like that? Well, one of my one of my favorite uh, documentaries is uh, Hoop Dreams. I, I love that film. Oh, cool! I could watch that like over and over again. Um, and um, I'm a big Ken Burns fan. Right. I think that's. Um, you can see that influence in, uh, in your stuff a lot. Oh, is that good or bad? <laughs> no, that's a good thing. I'd say. Yeah, um, but no, I, I'm, uh, I. I think a lot of documentary filmmakers are. Especially if you're, uh, if you do any kind of history film, he kind of, kind of paved the way for, for making history films. That's at true, least yeah. accessible to people, right? So you just did he a helped big one on uh, Vietnam. Eh? I haven't seen it yet, but uh... I, I watched part. I got to watch parts of it. And one of the one of the joys. It's sort of a double edged sword, right? When you're busy making documentary films, you're too busy to watch documentary <laughs> films. You don't get to watch other people's stuff sometimes. So. Do you, when you're making a doc, do you try not to watch any anything so that you're not influenced by it in a way? Yeah, or, yeah. I eh? do. I try to. I I do try to lock myself into a little cocoon sometimes and, and say, okay, I don't want to watch things. I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to accidentally, you know, uh, steal someone's idea. Or yeah. Subconsciously, even if you were an audio cue or something. Yeah. But, uh, no, Ken Burns, uh, I think it was always influenced me. I remember going back to high school and, uh, you know, the, the, the when civil, when his documentary, the civil war broke, Right, that was the big uh, one for him. He broke huge, and uh, our, you know, every high school teacher, I think, going was. Well, I know this is true because um, uh, drugstores and, uh, and places like Radio Shack, they were selling out of VHS tapes. Um, so high school history teachers were taping uh, um, the Civil War off of PBS and, and watching and showing it with to their classes. And after my high school, I took I was taking an American history course at the time. And so my high school history teacher was bringing it in and we were watching pieces of it wow. at the time. And I, and I was looking at it going, wow. I, I'm never I could never do that man like, right. I wish I could I want to tell stories I know I want to be able to tell stories someday in some way and I, I want to tell history I want to be able to you know but I just I'm, I can never do that yeah and um, you know but here I am. <laughs> yeah. But Just um got to break it down piece by piece to sort of make it seem more accessible in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, but his work is just great. I mean, I, I, I love watching even his early films like the Brooklyn Bridge and um, 
and some of his uh, and, and uh, the Statue of Liberty, which are two small standalone films that were done for PBS as well. You go back and you watch them, and you're like, wow! Like you look at his stuff then compared to what he's done, and, and but but stories they're compelling yeah. stories and um what he does is um he, he brings he um if you watch like the civil war for instance it's not a so much that it's a blow-by-blow account of the civil war and he does touch on some of the big element the big battles and the key turning points but it's a human story he tells yeah. a human story same as when he when he does baseball and um it's, it's, he tells the human story uh, and that sort of thing. The National Parks is probably one of my all-time favorites. And again, it's the human element that, of it all. That that's Plus the visuals are stunning too, but he, he has a great way of matching really great visuals with a human element. Yeah, it takes a topic, takes a topic that should him. be a massive topic and he makes it very intimate. Yeah, which is an interesting approach for for a doc, obviously, because of like where do you start with something so big as the Civil War, right? And then if you break it yeah. down to those smaller things, then telling that story through that that vein kind of helps, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that's an interesting pool to draw from. Any other sort of influences? Maybe not even just docs, but uh, any other influence filmmakers or. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, historians, different things like that. Um, from a historian point of view, uh, I, I'm an avid reader. Uh, I, I mean, I've always got a book in my hand. One of my favorite historians is the late David Haberstam. Um, okay. He's a social. He was a journalist and a social historian. And uh, again, he had a great way of democratizing history when he wrote his books. And um, he, uh, two of my favorites are uh, a book. One's called The Fifties, and the other one's called The Breaks of the Game. And uh, the Breaks of the Game is a is an account of um, the Shadow Supersonics of, of the seventies and uh, and their run toward greatness. And um, in the fifties is of course the title is self explanatory. It's a it's a basically a social history of of the nineteen fifties America. And, um, oh wow. Yeah, it's an interesting time in history. Everything that was going mm-hmm. on after the war and all that, right? Yeah. So, um, so, so both are just amazing. And um, uh, so those. So he's one of my favorites. And uh, you know, and uh, I think his voice, especially in today's society, I think his voice is missed. Yeah. It just. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, how'd you get into this business? Like, what got what was got you your start? Like, what was your your first gig, so, your first thing? Yeah, so I sort of came into it um, accidentally and uh, sort of out of necessity. Uh, so I was a journalist and uh, working in television. And um, this is uh, circa what year? Oh going back to 2002 now and so what happened was i was working in a television station and um this is in uh, kingston or Napoli, uh, no or? just outside toronto just outside, outside toronto okay we were living in belleville at the time and um we were splitting the difference my wife was commuting one way and i was commuting uh into the toronto area and um what happened was uh they came in one day and uh, it's never a good sign when the station manager uh um, has bloodshot eyes because he's been crying <laughs> when he comes into the, to the newsroom. Or he's been doing um, coke. 
it's, yeah, that's not it, man. No, <laughs> no. And he's flanked by a whole bunch of other suits. Oh. And he's the one that looks like he's, nah, it's not good. Um, basically, the news was, um, you're all gone, guys. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So I come home and uh, my wife kind of looks at me like, hey, you're, you're home a little earlier. And uh, I think we reunionized, so they could they had to give us a little bit of time and stuff. But uh, um, so I came home and uh, said, well, I have news. And she said, well, I have news, too. And, uh, so I told her that I lost my job. And she said, well, I'm pregnant. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, well, your news is better than my news. And um, so but um complicating that was the fact that my mother-in-law was dying of cancer as well oh wow so all yeah, at once so i had job offers i could have i had a job i had a concrete job offer to to go to chicago and then i had another couple offers one one was another one was in the states and uh but i looked around and I'm like, really am i going to move my pregnant wife away from her mother at the time and i right. said no i'm going to do that so and uh and watching the olympics play out and stuff and uh kind of trying to decide what to do and uh, my wife says well you always wanted to make a documentary about driving movie theaters i said well yes i did always want to do that and, and she says well why don't you just go do that and i said well i don't know how to do that and she says well you, you could learn and i said well i could and i said but i i don't have I don't know, I've never, I don't have a business or anything like that. She said, well, you could go start one. And I said, well, I don't have a lot of money, I don't have equipment. And she started pointing to things on the bookshelf that were full of knickknacks from when we'd gotten married a couple of years earlier. She said, well, we don't need that. We don't need this. We don't need that. She said, we'll have a yard sale in the spring. And um, so that's what we did. Uh, I took a how to start your own business course. And, um, and in the spring, by then, very pregnant wife and I had a yard sale and I took the proceeds of the yard sale to the bank which is a sort of a green rubber made container and <laughs> said hey, I'm going to start I'm opening a business account and the person at the teller bank looked that'd be funny um, and uh, and then I went from there and I started my account with homemade you know printed printed on a dot matrix printer business cards with the perforated edges um, and I used laptop computer uh, that could barely run it. Yeah. And um, and no and no camera. No I had camera. to borrow a, I had to borrow a camera whenever I had work. So you start um, out, you make this documentary about drive-ins and. It never. I know. I, I didn't make money. Um, <laughs> so I scrounged corporate work whenever I could. And then um, I came up with a uh, came up over a dinner with a friend of mine over Chinese food on or New Year's Eve one uh, that later that year after being business for like you know less than six months uh, to come up, create this uh, show about um, ghost towns and old mills and forgotten relics in Ontario we were going to call it Forgotten Ontario cool. so I pitched it to a colleague of mine who was still at, who was still in charge of programming at the TV station that I'd been fired at and he had his own show as well and he, I looked at it and he said yeah I can't use that he said I don't like that Great. He says, but I need filler. So if you can make them into little shorts, you know, which are interstitials, what you and I would call interstitials, right? right. If you can make them into little shorts, he says, I can use them. Make them, make them, make them into 90 second ones. He says, I can use them. He says, make one for me, make a pilot. Show me what you, what you think of. And I said, oh, okay. He says, but he says, you don't have a camera. Do you? I said, no. He says, great. He says, okay, come here. He says, come by the, on Saturday. I'm going to open the back door. He says, see that little camera? He says, you're going to pour up for the weekend. No one will ever know. <laughs> 
Oh. <laughs> I said, I'm going to go to jail. He said, no, 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 no. So we bore a camera. I buy a microphone. Oh, this audio but playing, by the way, archival okay. audio that, that no one had heard um, for like 60 years. Wow. Yeah. Where did you so, find um, it? Um, uh, again, a the archivist that I had used uh, had approached him and said, I have this audio. It was on a 72 RPM uh, record. Oh, cool. And it had to be to be digitized and everything and we were just lucky enough to find it it's the wow. only known audio of, of, of play-by-play of, of uh, New York Americans it's, it's because as Tommy believes that's why it was saved but it, was, it features the New York Americans so so, so back they... to, to so back to, to the story was um, so we so my friend who's an expert on on old mills he, he reason to do this thing for me of course it rains the day that we decided to shoot oh. with my poor old camera and a microphone that I bought that I intended to return. <laughs> so so he's out there with a microphone that's getting wet that I now own because it's wet and I can't return it. I'm standing under a bridge, like a highway overpass bridge, in a creek bed that's supposed to be dry. And the water's rising and rising and rising. He's out in the rain and we're shooting you know, his interview segments in the rain. So I cut it together and we show it to the guy. I take it back with the camera and I show it to the guy. He says, it's great. I love it. He says, I'll take 20. Oh, cool. It was great. And I said, but I don't have a camera. <laughs> and he says, uh, do you have an idea for one? I said, well, I'll use what I want to buy. He says, how much is it? And I said, well, it's X number of dollars. And he says, um, how much would it cost? To, how much were you going to charge me for these? And I told him how much. And he says, does that cover the cost of the camera? I said, yeah. Pulls out a checkbook. Writes a check. He says, here don't screw it up <laughs> what did you get back that's in how the day? i got it. that's really how like i got a, started did, would the uh, 2002 would that be too early for like the old pd 150 or yeah it was a used panasonic it was like basic it was not much more than a handy cam like okay. it was but it had professional line in and it had like manual focus ring and it was it was digital it was digital tape Right. Right. But it, but it, it, but it, but it had a cold shoe mount, so I could put on everything that I needed. And like I said, it had um, a switch on it, so you could change. You could use the ring to be manual focus or iris on it. Okay. And um, so that was it. But it was bro- technically broadcast quality because of what it shot at. And uh, basically, they were these cameras were used as crash cameras or as B cameras, right? Right. But I was using it as my A camera. And uh, so I took them, and then I sold them to uh, uh, like three or four PBS affiliates. And, and then I licensed it to TVO. Oh, wow. Yeah. So back then, were you doing all this sort of independent, or did you have yeah. like an agent? Or... No, all independent. Everything was independent right up until Father Parking. That was the first time I got an agent. Really? Yeah. And like yeah. you just sort of cold calling, cold emailing all these people, seeing what they'll take? Yeah. Or... Yeah. That's, yeah uh, everything, it's a tough it's process, a, eh? It's like a lot, it of, is. A yeah. lot of no's, a lot of people lot of telling you to go away. And yeah. It's, uh, you, you have to have a easy. thick skin. You, you really, really do, do, eh? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, thankfully, um, popular in high school, so I, I got I was used to rejection. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're okay with that, you know? Um, yeah. It, it, and also I played for probably one of the worst basketball, high school basketball teams ever. So I was also used to failure. <laughs> That's funny. So the, uh, while you're filming, I, I, um, I, I mean, I, I, I say that jokingly, but, but, uh, you know, sports, I played a lot of sports, um, and I have the scar tissue to show for it, but it does, it does teach you how to deal with failure and yeah. you will fail a lot and i have failed a lot and i think you probably would probably admit that too right that if you're oh, in this business in this kind of industry you're going to fail more than you're going to succeed a hundred percent yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of that but you got to learn how to learn from them and, and learn from the failure right and, yeah and uh yeah. sort of learn where and why things went wrong exactly and, yeah you know yeah i mean yeah, I've definitely seen that, and but it's you all take it as like a learning experience, and even people like at the top of stuff do stuff right. Like I don't know, you said you you brought your kids maybe to see uh, Justice League this weekend, <laughs> so even yeah. if you have you know hundreds of millions of dollars, you can still make a shit film. <laughs> Oh, I thought it was a pretty good movie. Oh man, uh, it's, I, see, I but see, I I don't like I don't like my comic book action heroes to be all shiny. No, and, I don't. Um, so I was okay with it. Yeah, so. I get. I don't know about you. I'm just. I am a fan of Batman comics, and I just. I don't know. <laughs> I had problems yeah. with it. Um, so while you're filming, uh, do you have any interesting stories, funny stuff, uh, complicated stuff, or just challenging uh, scenarios while you guys were making the, the documentary? Um, so, yeah, there were some times where things, you know, you, you go to shoot. Um, well, for me, of course, crossing the border is always interesting, right? So Yeah, how's that um, go? You have all this gear. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thankfully I, I use small gear, so uh, there's no there's not a lot of problem that way. But I, I've I've gone on a lot of vacations, um, <laughs> so quote unquote vacations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I so that helps a lot. Um, I, I got chased uh, now. Now I I use smaller cameras because the big cameras are what we call permit cameras, right? Right. Hey, if you got a permit for that, right? right? As soon as you have a big camera, some like some guy sees you, and all of a sudden you need a permit. Hey, you got a permit to be here, buddy? <laughs> I, I've had a dollar for every time that happened to me. Um, I'd have Ken Burns, but, but uh, I'd be okay. Um, you ever use the old I, uh, I, we're doing a wedding trick? Oh, this is for my friend's wedding, or we're making. Uh, oh, Oh, I should have tried that. That's because, a good one. Uh, to use. I was in, we were in we were in Brooklyn, and um, again, Lisa Melman would drive around, and she would just slow, basically slow down. I would hop out, shoot what we needed, and she would just drive around in circles, and then I would hop back in again. So we didn't need to park somewhere, um, because New York parking, right, is a, is a challenge sometimes. Yeah, I've actually never been to New York City, so I'll take So, well, again, this the, I, I, I've got to know certain spots just from having to be there for, for these films. But um, so there's an outdoor ice rink in, in Brooklyn and essentially funded by the Islanders. Um, okay. Beautiful ice, beautiful facility, really cool. And um, we were there in March uh, to shoot the footage, the, the March that we were there to shoot the interviews and do B-roll. So uh, I grabbed the camera and of course it's just a small camera, but it's rigged out. So there's a you know, shotgun lens wide angle lens and the whole kit and it's just that and then um 
a small X grip and, and then a monopod so I can stabilize it. The walk around, I'm just getting a little bit of B-roll out of this thing. And there's a guy who's part of the maintenance crew and he points to another guy who I'm thinking is like a supervisor. And they look at me and they're looking at me. I'm thinking, oh man, the jig's up, man. <laughs> Better start walking, Dale. But the other voice inside me saying, nope, get the shot, Dale, get the shot, Dale. So I stay and get the shot. And just as I'm starting to fold things up, in the corner of the viewfinder, you can see this guy walking toward me with this look of determination. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, you got a permit to be here? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I usually try and change the subject. Yeah, you, I'm like, you, I, yeah, I you, do. you don't look like a tourist to me. I said, you know what? This is a really nice ice rink. How long has it been here for? Yeah. Yeah, don't talk to me about ice rinks. You're getting shots or something. Okay, I'm leaving now. Yeah. <laughs> He followed me about halfway through the park. Really? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, he wasn't happy with me. That sucks. But yeah, we've always used just like uh, it's for a wedding. This is for a friend's birthday uh, video. Yeah, those, are good, those are good tricks. Yeah. No, or like uh, I, I guess I look a little younger than you, so I can I can pull this one off. But I say it's for a school project. Yeah. See, I can't do that. No, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. Maybe if uh, being the battered middle-aged guy that I am, it doesn't work. No. Yeah. But uh, there's always those little tricks, workarounds you got to try and yeah. uh, try and do. Yeah. I find if you have a pretty girl with you, sometimes that helps. You're oh. like taking photos of her. It's like she's a model, so her modeling career. But you're it, strategically framing sure, her I out of all the. I found it helps when I have my daughter with me is is a helper because they never would approach me because like oh it's just a guy and his daughter. Just his daughter taking her around. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what you should have had like your daughter posing in front of these buildings, but really you're just framing yeah. above her head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get home and your wife is wondering why your daughter thinks there's all these photos of her. <laughs> but there aren't any. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, just uh, interesting wondering about, like, uh, during this time of the Brooklyn Americans, uh, what was broadcasting like back then? Like, did people listen to the game on the radio or, like, yeah, newsreels? They, they would have listened to it on the radio. Um but uh, mostly it was uh, only if they were like an importer because uh, like the Leafs had their own broadcasting, right? So mm-hmm. um, like Foster Hewitt was, yeah. was broadcasting. Um, and um, and then what they were, was mostly uh, newspaper coverage and newsreels. Right. Yeah. So people so, would go into theaters, I guess, to see that back then? They would, so this is what would have popped up before you watched your main feature film. So instead of a whole bunch of... Uh, for cars and uh, everything else and cell phones, uh, you would have watched a couple of newsreels and a couple of cartoons, and then you would have watched your your film. I would wouldn't mind that. Like at the theater now, you know, like if they had Sports yeah. Center on, I wouldn't mind that at all. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be great? Yeah. Yeah. But of course, nowadays, right, everything's instantaneous, so you don't really need it. But back then, there wasn't a twenty four hour news cycle with you know, a hundred right. cable channels and everything being instantaneous. So, so you, that's how you got your new, like, you know, you, you would have caught this newsreel and sometimes those, those games were two or three days old before you got to see them sometimes right. longer. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it's interesting to think about now. Like I have like the NHL package now and like at any given time I can watch any game I want. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's sort of interesting. Um, so it was like hockey a big sport um, in the states back then, or was it more like it was? It was in it was big in areas like along the eastern seaboard. It was big. Um, so it was big. In, it was big in New York City. Uh, it was big in Boston. It was big uh, along the east coast. It was big in college towns. Right. So so college hockey was big. Uh, and the amateur game was was a big deal. Um, going back to it's funny because if we go back to um, Captain Sutherland, we we'll go back to the beginning of, uh, of this thing in my father's hockey film. Captain Sutherland, what he was doing was he was sort of a hockey evangelist, and, and he was an itinerant shoe salesman. So he was traveling up and down the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and uh, and especially the northeastern part. And um, he had hockey skates in the trunk along with shoe samples. <clears throat> and so he was basically selling hockey while he was selling shoes. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. So, so yeah. Again, uh, like meeting all these people for the first time, like, I guess, were you in correspondence with some of the interviewees and then like, yeah. So what we tried to do was like, this is, this is Bill Dutton. This is Bill Dutton here. This is um, Red Dutton's nephew. And um, he used to be. He at the time you're interviewing, he was one of the part of the ownership group of the um, Phoenix Coyotes. Oh, cool! Or Arizona Coyotes, whatever they want to yeah, call they them. Yeah, they changed it. Yeah. Whatever they change every week when it comes to the Coyotes. But um, uh, I think they, I think that ownership group is pretty much bought off now. But but at the time we made the film, he was part of the ownership group there. Okay. But so so for him, we did a pre-interview by email. Okay. And um, and then I think I did a short phone chat with him as well. And with these, I find that with, with documentaries, while you risk losing some spontaneity, and and sometimes like they'll tell you their best stuff ahead of time, you won't get you won't capture that again. Right. You, you, it's good to do a pre-interview because you risk showing up and putting somebody on camera who, while knowledgeable, has no business being on camera. Right. I was um, ask. Because. Because they're just going to look at the camera and basically stumble over themselves, freeze up, and you're going to, and and it's just not fair to them to put them on a screen. Do you do anything um, like in the room when you meet them, like to get them? Yeah, up, so or? I'll ch- yeah, I'll chat them up while I'm setting up gear and stuff, and um, we'll find something to talk about in common, and you know, say, oh, it could be hockey, it could be fishing, it could be you know, if they love movies. Right. Um, just find some common ground, whatever. get them talking. Yeah, and, and then we'll just put them at ease, and we'll just have a conversation while we're doing the interview. So the interview is really just a, just a conversation. It's just a chat. I mean, I've I've been doing this for you know for a while now, and uh, I find it's best to just sort of have a chat with them. Yeah. And so we'll you know we'll give them anywhere from a half a dozen to a dozen questions that are sort of bare bones and those are sort of jumping off points and so we'll ask those questions but there'll be follow-up questions and i'll circle back and i may ask the same question three times but in three different ways right to get the answer that i think is, is a good answer do you know going into the interview sort of what you want to get out of that 
person like you know they're the expert yeah. on x y and z so you're sort of trying to build up that that's sort right. of element of the doc yeah exactly yeah and then and then and so you can steer them to certain points right and and then you can also that way you make them sound the best as well right yeah, eh? um because you want them you want them to look and sound their best on camera you, you don't want them this this isn't a 20 minute this isn't a, a 2020 expose this this is this is a, a long form history documentary yeah you want them to you want them to come across as knowledgeable you want them to come across as confident and and charming context or yeah yeah and so we're not out to hang anybody we're out to tell a good story and to inform and entertain people uh and and, and to you you like uh like through parts of interviews and they tell you maybe some tidbit of information that like opens maybe a pandora's box of you know new things to like avenues to bring the documentary down or it does sometimes yeah absolutely yeah like just I don't know. Does that sort of hinder the process in a way, or does that sort of? <laughs> yeah, is it possible to say it hinders it in a good way? Yeah, um, I guess right. Like, yeah, you might have like go, an idea of where you want to go, but then yeah, something better kind of well, comes up. And again, it goes back to my my earlier point in our our chat, right, where I said. Uh, I'm not one of these guys who writes the script ahead of time and then wants to pigeonhole the interviews in. Right. I take a historian's ap- approach where I form a thesis or I'll come up with a, a concept or a construct and then I'll say, okay, now I have to research and do the interviews to either support or disprove what I have. And then we'll, we have to go where the research and interviews tell me that that's where I'm going to go. Right. And, that's and so if something that's comes up that, that points in a different way, then that's where I have to go. So otherwise, otherwise I'm not doing my job. So uh, after you made the film, did they have like a big screening in New York for it or? We, we did. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because um, we, the um, Brooklyn Americans exhibit was coming to an end, um, and the basically the 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 season for the Islanders, their inaugural season, was coming to an end for the Islanders. Um, was the inaugural or the second season? I can't remember. Maybe it was the second season for the Islanders was coming to an end, but the exhibit was coming to an end, and so um, so we we had an exhibit, we had a screening at the Brooklyn Historical Society. And we had Stan Fischler come and do a talk back after, Very and, cool. um, which was kind of neat. And I went down and um, for it, and um, it was, it's, I, I, well, you've been to screenings of your films, so you know what this is like. It's, it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, it's nerve wracking and exciting all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't sleep well the night before, you don't eat that day because you've got all a million kinds of nerves going on. Yeah. Um, so they they sold they they basically packed the place capacity. Wow. They uh, I think they could seat three hundred and they had more than that in there. Wow. So um That's always a yeah, good feeling, they, right? Yeah, they were shocked. Yeah, it was it was packed. And then of course I got a standing ovation, which you know they do to be polite, but they did. It was nice. But I had all the people coming up to me afterwards and they were, you know, um, family members of uh, Big Bill Dwyer and they had tears in their eyes saying, Oh thanks for, you know, not making my father or my grandfather or whatever out to be a monster. Thanks for telling me a real story about him and and, oh, and then thanks and, yeah and then thanks for telling a story where you know 
you tell a story where Brooklyn sort of is back on the rise and then, you know, and then other people say, you know, oh, I thought this was going to be just a bunch of stats and numbers and, you know, <laughs> a punch by punch account of this event, and this event, but you made it a human story. And then, and then I can't remember who it was, but someone actually said, wow, this was like a Ken Burns movie almost. Oh, that's wow, good. That's the cool. highest level compliment for you, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. Can, can you, can you tell my kids that? Tell them I haven't me. wasted uh, two years. I brought years. my son down uh, because, because I'd owed him a trip to New York because his sister got to go once. So I brought him and he said, dad, this is the least boring movie you've ever made. <laughs> that's funny. I, I said, you know what? I'm going to get that put on a t-shirt. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, what's uh, what's next on the horizon for you? More sports documentaries, more hockey movies? or? Yeah, so we're the executive producers that made this film with me. We're working on more stuff together. And in fact, we're working on um, a film on the history of the Hershey Bears. Right. So for people who don't know. They're, they're know an American they Hockey League team. And they're sort of considered the Montreal Canadiens or the New York Yankees. They're one of the next to the original six of the NHL. The Hershey Bears are the oldest professional hockey team in the United States, or sorry, in, in North America. I remember uh, I went to a lot of uh, Cornwall Aces games, the American Hockey League. Yeah, so yeah. I watched uh, right. I watched a lot of Hershey Bear games, and uh, I've been yeah. to Hershey, Pennsylvania, obviously for their chocolate. <laughs> yeah. So I've been I've been getting a chocolate i've been to hershey many times uh for the film and um my kids have been getting lots of hershey chocolate as well as a result and uh, so they're always happy when dad comes back from hershey and uh so we've been we've interviewed uh i think and this has become a a daunting film to try and piece together um because we where we struggled to find material for this film um, we have the opposite problem with the Hershey Bears film. You're just having a floodgate of information. We, we have a floodgate of, of material. And, and so, people are coming out of the woodwork, like on social media, they see the Facebook page and say, oh, hey, I have this old program and this old hockey sweater, and I was at this game, and I have you know a collection of hockey sticks, and I have a collection of old programs. And then we have, we've interviewed 35 people for the film. Wow. So I think it's going to be, I think we're talking about now about um, making a, a film that'll be roughly two and a half hours long and then carving it into three parts. We're calling it a history of the Hershey Bears in three periods. And so, um, yeah, we're going to make a three-part film. So, And then we've got a, a basketball film in the works and two other hockey films as well. And wow. uh, we have a, a multi-picture deal that we've strung together. So it's really exciting. That's really exciting. So looking at the credits here, it looks like it's, uh, it's a pretty small uh, team that made the film here. So... Oh, yeah, it's a very small team. Yeah. So that's yeah, the, it's it's yeah, it's not it's not a, a forty person crew here by no, any right. means. So, no. Well, uh, if people but, want to check uh, this out. The, they can check I, it out there, on. There's uh, a really good graphics guy that helped me film. <laughs> he did so, all right. <laughs> 
um yeah if people want to check this out they can check it out on itunes and uh, be sure to check it out and uh, keep an eye out where can people find you online on the twitter or on the facebook uh, dale yeah, so uh, on social media, or at, at WJP Media, and uh, Facebook, same thing. And then Brooklyn Americans is uh, at Amberk's Movie on uh, social media as we'll well. be sure to tag and, uh, all that and, uh, and yeah. put it out on, on our stuff. Uh, and uh, we really enjoyed having you on the podcast for this little test. And uh, maybe we'll be able to have you back for your Hershey Bears movie. I would love that. Thanks for having me, man. All right, great. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Lost Commentary, on Instagram at Raiders of the Lost Commentary, and like us on Facebook. I'll be back.